0: Welcome to Mexico Matters, the CSIS podcast about how events occurring in Mexico can impact and more importantly matter in the United States. I am Mariana Campero, non-resident senior associate of the Americas program at CSIS and the former CEO of the Mexican Council on Foreign Relations, COMEXI. The U.S. and Mexico share a 2,000-mile border with thousands of people crossing it each day, both legally and illegally. But we share much more than a border. We're trading partners, we build together, and are invested in each other's future. In fact, Mexico is a major trading partner of the U.S., but the number one trading partner to many states, including Texas. Experts to Mexico support more than a million jobs, and yet despite the vastness and the importance of this relationship for the livelihoods of millions, it has sadly been reduced recently to the one issue that is politically explosive, the issue of migration. To talk about the political realities behind the U.S.-Mexico relations and how the issue of migration is impacting U.S. policy, as well as the possibilities of achieving a smart immigration reform and it is truly my pleasure to welcome former Representative for Texas' 34th Congressional District, Philemon Bela. Congressman, thank you very much for being with us today. As you know, Mexico's economic success depends largely on the U.S. But as you also know, the Lopez Obrador administration has recently taken a series of measures that have impacted billions in U.S. investments and investments from Texas, but they're also anti-market and clearly anti-American. How are these policies impacting the economy and the attitudes of Texans over Mexico?
1: I think when you take a look at the history of the U.S.-Mexico relationship, you know, over the course of the last 180 years, it's really astonishing to me because I feel like after all that time and knowing that everything you're talking about is true with respect to the intense trade relationship between the two countries and the deep cultural ties, that we're kind of in a place where you feel like leadership in Mexico doesn't fully appreciate the degree of the relationship, and at the same time, neither do we in the United States. So you have this situation where you have these two countries with deep economic ties, deep cultural ties, and yet it feels like the spirit of the conversation anytime we talk about the U.S.-Mexico relationship is more negative than it is positive. And I think a lot of that really has to do with the failure of our leadership. And when I say failure of our leadership, I'm not just talking, you know, the president of each country, but I'm talking all of those of us that are part of leadership in government and in business. We have really not done a very good job of letting the publics in both countries know that despite all these, I mean, it seems like. We seem to focus on the negative aspects, especially now we're always turning to immigration and border security. But at the end of the day, when you consider the fact that, you know, for example, like you mentioned, Mexico is the number one trading partner for many states in the United States. We've got to figure out how to turn that around. I think we have to f- figure out how to make sure that the people of both countries fully appreciate each other uh, more than they do.
0: Should the U.S. government use the leverage it has over Mexico's economic success to impact the direction of the country?
1: Well, I'm I'm hopeful about the current administration's attitude toward Mexico in terms of trade and commerce. And, And, you know, although I have not specifically dealt, for example, with the Department of Commerce on issues specific to Mexico, in my dialogue with people at the Department of Commerce, I get a sense that there is a full understanding of how significant that relationship is. And I think that with respect to the people that I talk to, both in the administration and in business, there is a deep commitment to investment in Mexico. So when leadership in Mexico puts up hurdles, to those investments, it makes it very difficult because it kind of it freezes uh, the ability of US companies to go do the kinds of things they'd like to do with respect to increasing investment in Mexico. And I think at the end of the day, it hurts the Mexican public as well.
0: Congressman, the Rico, I think it's a very good example of the different dimensions that make up the US-Mexico bilateral relationship. Yes, the border is certainly about immigration and security, but it is also about trade, about investment, about tourism, environment, culture. And despite the asymmetries that exist on each side, border communities are very dynamic regions. How is the current migrant situation affecting border towns? And do you think politicians in Washington and Mexico are sensitive to these realities?
1: In general, I think that. Governmental leadership in Mexico City and governmental leadership in washington d c have no idea what life on the border is about. And you know, I, I talk to counterparts in you know Matamoros and Reynosa who will often point out that Mexico City is not really paying attention to the Mexican border towns. and I get the very same sense here in Washington as well, and and to community leaders along the border, that Washington doesn't understand what life on the border is. And and I think that's true for both publics at large. And for those of us who grew up on the border, in fact, for those of us who have generations of life on the border, you know, it's frustrating because, you know, I'll give you an example. In, in, In South Texas, there are thousands of families of Mexican descent who've been on the U.S. side of the border since the 1860s. And it, it's, it's true that, especially in contemporary times, there has been, you know, a lot of news and a lot of attention on the issues of immigration and border security and migrants and all that. But the reality is, is life on the ground, I'm not going to say people are not cognizant of these issues, but it makes up a very small part of what people on the border are really living through. I mean, life goes on and, you know, people are doing business. I I talked to a banker in, in McAllen, Texas yesterday, who said that from their standpoint, although they're somewhat concerned about interest rates and things like that, you know, business is buzzing. And, you know, so, so I think, You know, although I I don't think we should ignore the issues of border security and immigration, I think that people need to understand that those issues do not consume the life of people that live on the border.
0: Immigration has traditionally been viewed as a Hispanic issue, yet polls show that Hispanics in South Texas, but also elsewhere, are more likely to support stronger enforcement positions on the border. In fact, President Biden has lost their support. A recent poll shows that only 26% of Hispanics approve of Biden's job performance. It is the lowest mark of any demographic group. Congressman, what are the hot button issues that are turning Hispanics off to this administration?
1: I mean, I think you're right in terms of attitudes of Hispanics on the border reflecting the national attitudes to some extent. It's all a matter of degree, right? We can't be precise about it. But I think if you took a snapshot of people on the border and you asked their opinions of the hot topics of the day, you're going to get different opinions from everybody you ask. And it's not going to be because of their ethnicity. You know, I think with respect to the president's Poll numbers. The reality is because I was and am an ardent supporter of President Biden. When we go back to the presidential primaries in Texas, we were able to win the primary in Texas. The uh, Mike Bloomberg and Senator Sanders were our primary opponents at the time, but we did not perform that well in the border communities, which wasn't necessarily true in Mexican American communities in in other parts of the state. And I don't really know why. I do think in general that politicians, except for people that are from the border states, and I think you'd have to go back to President Bush. I think in general, politicians that run nationally are having a very difficult time understanding that the Hispanic population in the United States is very different. And I can even break it down for you. I mean, Cuban Americans in Florida are different than Mexican Americans along the Southwest. And then, you know, the same thing with the Puerto Rican community, right? But you can break it down further. I mean, when I was in Congress, I represented a deep South district. And some of my Mexican American colleagues from California You know, who are personal friends of mine, we had totally different perspectives on things related to our community. So, you know, even within the Mexican American community, there are sharp differences from region to region. And you can take that even further down. And I think there's a congressional primary May 24th that's basically based out of Laredo, the San Antonio. And you have Congressman Cuellar. Uh, who is a friend and whom I support against Jessica Cisneros. And in the primary back in March, Congressman Cuellar was pooling 70 75% of the vote in the counties south of San Antonio, which were largely Mexican-American, but it was in reverse in the city of San Antonio with the same Mexican-American demographic for all practical purposes. So even in that 240-mile radius, People of Mexican descent who live in the more rural and the, I wouldn't even call Colorado rural anymore, but the rural Texas border counties have a different attitude than Mexican-American voters in the central city of, of San Antonio, right? And I, I was uh, in New York City last week and I was um, having a conversation with a general counsel of a major U.S. corporation who is of Cuban descent. And he grew up in New Jersey and we were having this very discussion and the same holds true For Cuban-Americans in the East Coast versus Cuban-Americans in Florida, right? And I think that the challenge for understanding the Hispanic vote nationwide is going back to the beginning and realizing when we're talking about this community, that it really is a lot of different communities. And so I think that misunderstanding is what hurts candidates with respect to gaining immense popularity in the group as a whole.
0: As you say, the Hispanic term really encircles an incredibly amorphous community. We have white immigrants from Europe to black descendants from Africa, to native Mesoamericans. And in the United States, you also have new immigrants or multi-generation families that identify as either Catholic Evangelical or Protestant or Jewish, and the reality is that the Puerto Ricans have as little in common to the Mexicans who actually see Brazilian as totally distant.
1: Right, right.
0: Congressman, but let me now move to an issue that you just mentioned. You spoke about the May twenty fourth runoff between Congressman Quayer and a progressive candidate called Jessica Cisneros. Do you believe that if Jessica were to win? the Democrats would be opening the possibility for the GOP to win in this election in South Texas?
1: The May 24th, and I think that's the right date, runoff is going to be very interesting to watch because of the dynamics that I mentioned. I really do believe that what it really boils down to is do the voters in the southern part of that district, which is the county south of San Antonio, do they come out in greater numbers than the voters in San Antonio? And if the voters south of San Antonio come out in greater numbers, Congressman and will win. If they don't, then Jessica may have a chance, a better chance at winning. Uh, saying that, I, I totally agree with the commentary you're referring to. I believe that for Democrats to keep that spot, that it is critical that Congressman and win that race. Otherwise, you know, I think for the general election electorate, especially, you know, given what is going on right now with, you know, the inflation and energy prices and all that sort of stuff will make it very difficult for a progressive candidate to win in November, never mind the fact that the presumed Republican nominee, Cassandra Garcia, will be a very strong candidate.
0: Let me now move to the issue of migration. The number of migrants crossing the U.S. southern border illegally has reached an all-time high. Border authorities arrested more than 200,000 people in the month of March alone. This is the highest record in decades. And Homeland Security is projecting as many as 18,000 apprehensions per day, which could translate into millions of encounters. This reality has made it very hard for the Biden administration to suspend Trump-era immigration policies, including one that is called Remain in Mexico. This is a program which has prevented approximately 70,000 migrants from being released into the United States to await their asylum proceedings. Instead, they're being sent to Mexico. Currently, to request asylum, people must show up either on the U.S. or at a port of entry. In fact, there's no way to ask for asylum in the U.S. consulates abroad or to get a visa or any type of authorization in advance for the purpose of seeking asylum. Literally, people just have to show up. Congressman, what are your views on the asylum process?
1: I think we as a nation have to be compassionate and ready to give asylum to people who are in danger back home. The problem with the system as it currently stands is... We haven't quite figured out how to distinguish between asylum claimants who really are in danger back home and those that are not. And because we haven't been able to distinguish that, there are likely a lot of people coming making asylum claims that may not deserve it. There are many that do. And I don't know that we're going to be able to ever distinguish that. You know, I kind of see Remain in Mexico and Title 42 as all part of the same conversation. And at the end of the day, I think the problem is, is that for decision makers, they're in a bind and because they have to choose between two things. One, what is the right thing to do versus the other side of the coin is what is the right thing to do politically? In other words, to ensure victory, right? Because- I think most people would agree, and I'm sure there's some that won't, but the the objective of getting into a political race is to win it. And the issues of of border security and immigration and remain in Mexico and Title 42 have become so toxic that people who oppose the remain in Mexico policy, or people who think that we should rescind Title 42 That was basically essentially based upon a public health crisis, which. For all practical purposes, we're now over, right, will be punished at the polls if they take that position, especially, you know, deep in South Texas. So that's the puzzle that confronts people that are running for office right now.
0: Let me go back quickly just to briefly explain to our audience what Title 42 is. Title 42 is an emergency public health order which was actually put in place back in 2020 to allow the government to bypass standard immigration proceedings and to be able to rapidly deport most migrants either to their home country or to Mexico. This was to prevent the spread of COVID. Thus far, this restriction has actually allowed the government to expel close to 2 million people. And there are many voices, both inside the Democratic Party and inside the Republican Party, who have voiced opposition to ending Title 42. Congressman, without a health threat, how can Title 42 be extended?
1: I I just don't think that at this point, you know given the fact that and really republican led courts have lifted the mask mandates for all practical purposes, um, removed any government mandates re- regarding the coronavirus. You know now if you go on an airplane, people do not have to be masked. The same holds true for businesses across this country. I mean you know I was in New York City, which is a de- democratic city just last week and You know, the difference between now and just four months ago is totally different. People, you know, most of the people on the street are not masked anymore. So, you know, it it may change soon because coronavirus numbers are on the increase. Hopefully, hopefully not. But at this current time, I think it's hard to justify keeping Title 42 in place on the basis that there is a public health crisis. You know, that's a different question. That's a different question than you know, should we let people come across, right? But we shouldn't be using the coronavirus at this current point in time to justify a policy that keeps people away. I mean, if there are other reasons for it, that's fine. But let's not kid ourselves by using the coronavirus as the reason, especially when the people who believe that most strongly are the same ones who think that we've overreacted to the coronavirus,
0: Congressman, you have led previous efforts to reform the country's immigration laws. There's no doubt that the U.S. needs people to satisfy your economic needs, and that includes low-skilled labor for industries such as construction or agricultural or services, but it also includes high-technology-skilled labor to push innovation and to increase your competitive profile. However, this issue has become so politicized that nothing appears possible anymore. On one side, you have Republicans who do not want to engage in the conversation at all if the issue of border security is not included in the conversation. And on the other side, Democrats won't engage either without dealing with the 10 or 12 million people already living in the U.S. illegally. Realistically, do you think there's a deal to be made?
1: Yeah, I'm not very optimistic about immigration reform going forward. I think that we've totally botched it. First of all, when I got elected to Congress in 2013, and and even before, well before that, probably dating back to President Bush's era when he put forth what is essentially the current immigration reform package that is filed every congressional year by leaders in the Hispanic caucus. That is essentially to provide a pathway to citizenship to the people that are already here. I have never understood, I never thought it made sense to tie the pathway to citizenship for the people that are already here to border security measures because they're already here. I mean, what good is it gonna do you to secure the border with respect to the people that are already here? And from the very beginning, conditioning a pathway to citizenship for the people that are already here to border security measures never made sense. And I'm not saying we shouldn't have border security measures. I'm just saying it didn't make sense to connect the two. But over the course of the last, when I say we have botched this, I include myself. You know, 10 years ago or nine years ago, we were talking about a pathway to citizenship for 11 million people. We're not even talking about that anymore. You know, three years later, we started talking about dreamers. And next thing we know, all we were talking about was dreamers. We were no longer talking about the 11 million people that are already here. So then we started getting boxed in and then the debate began to be well we'll we'll trade off a pathway to citizenship for the dreamers and republicans would say well we need border security measures next thing we're still not talking about the 11 million people that we were talking about 9 or 10 years ago and then it only got worse because you know the situation and it's your mind numbs to it because it seems like over the last four to five years, maybe going a little further back back than that, because President Obama was, real, was in office when we had the first surge of Central Americans, right? You know, all of a sudden the conversation turned to, what are we going to do about the Central American refugees and asylum claimants? And yeah, I would say over the last two years, we're not even talking about dreamers anymore. And we're caught up in this really big mess, you know, debating what are we going to do about Central American migrants, Title 42, remain in Mexico. And all along, we've lost track of what the original focus was, was what are we going to do about the 11 million people that are here, that have been here for decades in many instances, that even Republican leadership or moderate Republican leadership, the Chamber of Commerce, all believe we need to do something about.
0: Congressmen call it politics, frustration or urgency. But Republicans, including Governor Abbott from Texas, have been fierce critics of the administration's border policies. Actually, Governor Abbott has announced unprecedented measures to secure Texas's own border. He has introduced vehicle inspections, which caused chaos and millions of losses as lines of structures waited for hours to cross the border. He has even threatened to go even further, and some groups are pressuring him to declare invasion. Do you think there's a path for the U.S. to achieve border security without recurring to these extreme measures?
1: I think it's hard to really answer that question and just in terms of even answering the question, with respect to border security because that depends on how you define border security. And we can define border security in many ways. I mean, if you ask me where, where I live in Brownsville, Texas, if border security means do people feel safe, then the border secure because I mean, I think people who live in Brownsville, Texas feel safer than people who live in Chicago or Washington DC right now. If that's your definition of border security, right? But people would define border security any way they want. I, I think Governor Abbott's approach to the issue of immigration border security over the last year are simply a product of his Republican primary politics. You know, it's the Republican primary voter in Texas has skewed to the extreme on issues of border security and immigration. And in order to maintain his popularity amongst that base, he's had to go do these things, which in my view are largely constitutional. I mean, to to shut down commercial truck traffic at our ports of entry you know, it was just a huge mistake. And I think every border businessman and woman, Republican or Democrat, would tell you that that was a really bad
0: yeah, Costing millions, yeah.
1: And I think that the severe enforcement measures that the state has undertaken are really of very little significance. I mean, even by and large, the National Guardsmen, who the state sent to the border to to, to so-called secure it would tell you that their efforts were a total waste of time. And I just think that the governor's actions in this respect defy the constitution and do not recognize that those roles are the prerogative of the federal government and not the state government.
0: Immigration is a combination of both, pull and push factors, right? And the United States is no doubt the largest economy in the world with huge demands for labor. And on the other side, you have countries in Latin America and elsewhere that are plagued with push factors, such as lack of economic growth or violence or drought. In fact, Mexican migration, which had been basically flat for many years, is now going up again. 40% of encounters by border patrol recently were, in fact, Mexicans. How can the U.S. satisfy its need for smart immigration while at the same time having the ability to control who can come in and who cannot, and at the same time deal with Mexico to ensure that we continue to work together on the issue of migration, but also for the competitiveness of North America?
1: Well... I don't know that we're going to be able to solve this because the issues are so divisive that common sense isn't even at the table anymore. I think that if there is a solution, it's going to be more long-term. And I think it's going to require leadership in both countries that can really come together. I I think it goes back to what we started off at the very beginning. I I think it boils down to leadership understanding that building a more robust public relationship between the two countries that reflects the actual relationship with respect to the, the issues of trade, commerce, and culture, which are still there. I mean, all these negative things we've talked about, does not really impact the positive economic ties nor the cultural connection anyway, right? It's just almost a matter of perception. But I think that requires leadership in both countries that can really come together so that people on the North American continent understand that, you know, we are all one.
0: After this conversation, it doesn't appear that we will find a political will to truly solve this migration crisis. And at the same time, the López Obrador administration is taking full advantage of how this is playing out politically to extract a series of concessions from the Biden administration. That is, as long as Mexico continues to help in curbing migration, that the U.S. will not use its leverage to change the direction on um, many, many important issues that will be very damaging in the long run, such as energy security or violence or democratic deterioration. I hope I am wrong, Congressman.
1: I think, you know, to end on a positive note, the fact is, is that the trade and cultural connections will never end. And, and it's maybe not just governmental leadership, but uh, and, you know, now I'm, I'm not part of government. I, I've got you know, obligations out in the private sector. And I think those of us both in government and in the private sector, you know, I think to get this relationship to the right place is going to require all of us kind of doing our part, you know, to make sure that the general public knows that these deep trade and cultural ties, one, that they already exist, two, that they're not going to go away, and three, that we should appreciate them.
0: We have come to the end of this episode. Congressman, thank you very, very much for this conversation. I am Mariana Campero. Thank you very much for listening. If
1: you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts. From Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major
0: streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify.